Well, it's good to see you. It's good to be back. And I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. How many of you have some weight to lose now after Thanksgiving? Okay. Well, we, I think there's a run right after church today. You can run around the, the, the property several times. Well, we're glad you're here. And I also want to say a special thanks to the three amigos who filled in for me while I was gone. Uh, little John, uh, the heater, and the bear spoke while I was gone. I understand they all did a terrific job. And some of you who weren't here, uh, actually, how many are here today are relatives and you're visiting on Thanksgiving? Can we just see your hand? Got a bunch of you here. I, I've got a whole section back here. These are all of our, these are kids, not all of them, but there's a good portion of them. And so all, all the kids, grandkids, just put your hands up and, and wave. Come on. They're not, there's a bunch of them. There's a whole bunch of rows back there. And we, we've got them all the way from the East Coast to Denver to Santa Monica to, and they're here with grandkids. So we've had a great time and, and I hope you're having a great time too with your families. But uh, we encouraged, uh, we started a prayer goal for the end of the year and it involves three things. And the first one is we are praying about uh, our missionary support for the end of the year. Our goal is to, to raise some money for missions again as we come to the end of this year, asking God to help us make our first gift this Christmas to Jesus. And so we want you to pray about that. We've already had some reports of what's come in, some pledges. It's very, very exciting. We'll let you know more about that in the future. Also, we want you to pray uh, as well for our, our whole year-end giving. And then secondly, for our pastor search. Things are happening. You're going to hear more about it. Keep praying. And some of you have been praying all along, and you let us know that. So that's really encouraging. And God is at work. As I've shared with you before, you pray. I have a lot of confidence. If we don't pray, I don't have any. Because God is answers, and he works when his people seek him. And then the third thing is praying about all of our opportunities at Christmas. Chad alluded to them. We've got a Christmas Cafe coming up. And uh, Christmas Eve, by the way, did you know Christmas Eve is the second most heavily attended service of the year in services across the country? And people will still come if we'll invite them. Many people don't come because nobody thinks they would come if they'd asked them. So let's ask. And then also, one of the ways to invite people to Christmas Cafe is to say, hey, we've got this wonderful music thing over at the church, and we'd be happy to get tickets for you. Love to have you come as our guest. Let them know you're buying tickets for them. You can just say, we'd love you to be our guest. We can get tickets for you. Would you come? It's a wonderful time. And so you'll be praying about those names of people during this whole Christmas season. And also, if you'll look in your, uh, notice this flyer says Promise of Hope. This is the little series we're going to be doing in the month of December, the Promise of Hope. First one starting next week is Promise for Discouragement. Anybody here ever been discouraged or heard of anybody who has? Okay, that might help. Here's one, Promise for the Impossibility. I'm sure you've never faced any. And then promise for future fulfillment. What's the whole world looking for? Fulfillment. They want to know their future is established and well here on earth is they don't even maybe they don't think about the real future. But encourage you to take this, invite people, and let's ask God to use it as well. You know, we're entering into the most wonderful season of the year, right? Okay, some of you are excited about it. But that's that's what the song says. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Well, it's supposed to be. It should be. Now, I love this season. I love Thanksgiving all the way through Christmas. I love the lights, the music. I like the gifts, all of it. Just as fun. Relatives, family, and food. It's wonderful. However, it's supposed to be, but the truth is, it is also the most stressful time of year. Did you know that for families? Most families report more emotional, relational pain during the Christmas, Thanksgiving season than any other time of the year. 
Do you know why? Because so many unresolved issues come together and people are together and there's tension. I, over the years as a pastor, I had people who come to me crying. What am I going to do? My dad and my mom are coming. My aunt, uncle, some estranged person. And so it can be a great challenge to people as well. And I'm also told, ladies, I'm not sure about this, but I understand that if you're a wife, a mother, there is a, there's certain kinds of responsibilities or pressures you have at Christmas time. You know, like prepare the food and the gifts and all those things. Am I close? Am I getting warm? Is there any of that? Okay, I have two people who agree with that over here. Well, we know that's true as well. And uh, so you have some of those pressures that are there. And not only that, we know that there are financial pressures that may not show up in December, but guess what? They do in January. And you realize, what do they call, you know, how many, how many were part of Black Friday? I stood home, stayed home. Yes. And, you know, some of you braved it. It's called Black and Blue Friday, I think. But once you get out there into January, it's the bluest month of the year. Did you know that? More people get on medication in January, bills that can't be paid, and you know, the highest suicide rate of the year is January. Now, folks, this is all to encourage you, to, to, to let you know that you're, you're heading into the Christmas season. But it's also to say, let's be a little bit real about the fact it, there may be a challenge or two out there. And this morning, I'd like to address that. And... Um, you know, there's also tired people this time of year. Some of you have just been pressing. You're just waiting to get to a couple of days off at Christmas. You just had one or two at Thanksgiving. And if you can just get there, you think, if I can hold on, it's going to be okay. We have tired people. You know, Augustine wrote his confessions uh, centuries ago. He's in the fourth century. Uh, today's message is a little bit of, of my confession for this time of season. And if you look at your outline, this is called Recreation. Recreation, recreation, the rhythms of rest. Did you know that's what recreation really means? Time to recreate. And if we don't come apart for a while, we'll come apart, is what the expression goes. And uh, we want to talk about that. So I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to um, 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at the life of a man who needed some rest. And uh, before you, you find, or go ahead while you're turning, I want to ask you this question. If you could go anywhere, travel anywhere, to kind of get away and rest for a while, where would you go? Can you think about that for a minute? Where would you go to, to rest? Now, if you were to ask Patricia and I this time of the year, if we could go anywhere we would want to, to, to get away and rest, what do you think we'd say? Yes, we'd stay right at home. Now, even, even walking to the mailbox is getting a little challenging, you know? Driving in a car is not exactly fun right now. On the other hand, if I just had to go somewhere, I would go to Maui. But as wherever you know, it might be. It's just nice to cool our jets for a while. And uh, this has been somewhat of a stretch for us this year. And uh, you know, we always thank you so much for those of you who prayed for us. Uh, Patricia mentioned that last week. Uh, um, as we go overseas and we sense God's people praying, we had wonderful answers to prayer. Uh, but at the same time, I have to tell you what went on at, at the end of our, of our trip in Cambodia. We, I spoke for 11 straight days. And, uh, and, and not only that, folks, uh, we experienced a new meaning to hot. It was their coolest month of the year. Now, you couldn't actually see hell from there, but you could feel it. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, I was raised in the great mid-sweat, you know, where it's all humidity. And this one added some of that. It's hotter, almost as hot as the Philippines. And so that added, and we came to the last conference, and the very last day, which is usually a triumph, a big climax, and you go out of there with a high five, and yay, we go home. We came to the last session, and I looked, and even our translators were kind of weary by now. They'd been through three conferences, three different locations. We had to drive in cars and go places, and, and the young guy who I had was a fantastic translator. 
I'm not sure what happened the last session, but for the close, I have them write out a six-month plan that they're going to train their own leaders when they go home. And Patricia and her team was with the women. My, our team was with the men. We're working on this. Now, admittedly, it's not an easy deal. In fact, for some of them, they look like deer in the headlights. It's a shock to have to do this kind of work to get ready. And even can they pull it off? It's a big deal. But at the same time, we built momentum. It was great. And uh, so we're starting into this session. From the very beginning, there was kind of a clunk. And uh, now there's spiritual resistance, different things. But my translator's brain did not arrive with his body. He's a young guy. He's fantastic. I think he was thinking about his girlfriend. But I would say a phrase, and he kind of, huh? I mean, he, he, he'd known it all by now, and he was just a little bit slow on that. And inside, I began feeling myself get agitated. The truth is, I was tired before I went to Cambodia. I was tired now. And in this last session, inside of me, instead of finishing well, what I'm feeling like, I'm getting ticked because the Cambodians are looking at me like, huh? They're really not into it. My translator's not into it. As we finished the thing, we worked through it. And when I was done, I was toast. And I uh, talked to the team afterward. I said, you know, this had to be the worst finished to anything I've done in about five years. Now, I think I overstated it. But I began to, um, anyhow, on the way home on the plane, I had brought some books to read and kind of reenter. And one of them is a book that has ministered to me many times. Ruth Haley Barton's book called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And in there, she talks a lot about how we quiet ourselves before God and let him speak to us. And she came to a chapter on burnout. And she listed uh, six or seven things that are indications of burnout. And I'm sitting there reading. I'm going like, Chick. yep, number one's me, two, three, four. There were seven of them, and I had all eight of them. Seven, I had eight out of seven. I would have had more if she'd have had more. And I said, God, how did that happen? I've been, I've been having my times with God. I pray. I, all these kinds of things. But it was like... I'm not sure what was going on. And so what I want to share with you this morning is the fact that I'm not the first one or the only one who, who maybe experienced that. In 1 Corinthians 19, we have the story of someone who has had incredible impact in our world. And uh, if you'll turn to first, excuse me, not 1 Corinthians 19, because there's only 16 of those, but 1 Kings, I told you it's been a kind of a... That's, 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to look at the life of the well-known prophet Elijah. And some of you know the story of how Elijah just appears out of nowhere. Elijah the Tishbite. And the next thing you know, he is encountering Ahab, the wicked king in the north in Israel, and the, the prophets of Baal, or Baal, and this pagan king. Um, and he challenges him to a duel, and it says that Elijah prays. That for three years that it won't rain. I mean, he says, God, don't let it rain for three years. And God answers his prayer. Now, folks, that's called some major league faith. I've tried that. It doesn't work. You know, it's still raining around the world. And, and then it says he challenges the prophets of Baal to this spiritual battle. And then finally God sends fire down. It burns up this altar. And then the, the prophets of Baal are killed. And then it says God gives Elijah this supernatural energy. And he rides ahead of the chariots outruns horses without Nikes, I don't get it, all the way back to the capital, and he beats them. And folks, I think he's running in, in flip-flop sandals or whatever. So it's obviously a supernatural thing. He has just experienced two fuel-injected spiritual victories all given to him by God. But the next scene is we see him heading in an opposite direction. You see, the queen, Jezebel, and that's her, Gets the word out, she says, because you killed my prophets, he says, by tomorrow you will not be alive or I'll be dead. 
because we're going to get you. Now, wait just a minute. If you really wanted to kill somebody, would you send them a letter that says, hey, he sent you, we're going to kill you tomorrow or sometime? Wouldn't you just take him out? Well, anyhow, Elijah does the manly thing, and he runs as far away as he can. He just takes off, and he runs and runs and runs until he's completely exhausted and drained. And that's where the scene begins in 1, Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, what I forgot to tell you as well is that um, coming back from Cambodia, um, I got back on a Tuesday and I had been invited right before I left to Cambodia for a, a quick mini retreat in Costa Rica with a college buddy. And so jumped on a plane less than 24 hours after I got home, went to Costa Rica. And um, when I got there, it was beautiful, it was wonderful, but folks, I was in a fog. And I really went to connect with God the first day I read the Bible, and it just the pages were blank. I tried to pray. I could not. And um, it took two full days before there began to be some reconnection in my soul. So I identify a little bit with our boy here, with, with Elijah and his experience. And the, what we're going to see is that to discover the rhythms of rest, we need to go back to recognize the source of life, the source of all we're looking for which is God himself. Notice the passages for you. I love this. He restores my soul. I don't know about you, but over the decades, God's had to restore my soul over and over and over again. It's his regular work in my life. How about yours? And then the well-known passage from Isaiah 40, Erica read this morning from the first part of the chapter. Those who wait or trust in the Lord will renew their strength. Why? It says because even the lions and young men get tired and worn out. We don't have enough strength left to ourselves to keep going through the challenges of life. And so what Elijah's going to discover as he runs is that the first thing is he needs to recognize the source of life. Now, how easy is it us to forget, you say, the source of what? Just of all that we need, all that we hope to be. God is our source, is he not? And how easy to forget when we're burned out and our life isn't cooperating with our dreams and our elimination, or, excuse me, and our um, uh, limitations and our weaknesses cloud God out of the picture. Does that happen? It certainly does. And that's the case we have here. And Elijah has experienced this great victory. And uh, just one chapter before, he's been on the top of the mountain. And now here we are one chapter later. And he's having to ask himself this. Who holds the universe together? Who made it? And um, who's holding his own life together? He's not. He needs to realize, and he's going to, that the source is the one who holds him together. And every good thing in our life comes from the source. There's nothing that we enjoy that doesn't come from God. And it seems like Elijah is the one who's forgotten who pulled him through his string of successes. Who is the one who has given him victory? And right now, where is God? Did God go out of business? Did God lose his power? Is he uninterested? Or is he a restorer? And that's what this chapter is about, how God restores him and how God wants to restore you and me to strength and to a relationship with him. Maybe you heard the story years ago of a supposedly true of Muhammad Ali when he was the heavyweight champion of the world. He got on an airplane. Some of you remember that story? And he sits down and the flight attendant walks by and says, oh, sir, you need to fashion your seatbelt. And he looks up at her with kind of a twinkle in his eye and he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she stopped and looked at him and quick as a whip, she says, and Superman don't need no airplane either. Fasten your belt. <laughs> Just to remind him, he was not in charge of the universe at this time. 
Now, folks, when life is out of whack or what you have trusted in up to this time appears to be unreliable to carry you through, what do you do? You see, it's a time for us to review all that God has done for us before and then amortize that into the future to predict what he will do again. Elijah doesn't have that capacity right now. He's not able to pull that one off. So question in your life, how do you handle disappointment? How do you handle loss? And what gets you up and gets you going again? That's what we're going to look at in his life. So the first thing is we need to recognize the source is not us. We're not holding the universe together. And secondly is to release our load to him. Now, isn't it true that in this life we pick up extra baggage along the way that slows us down? And when we begin to burn out, we forget who's in charge of our lives. And there are times when life just gets heavy. Circumstances that are out of our own control. For example, I think of soldiers right now who'd love to be home from Afghanistan. And in other places, they'd love to be there with their families. And you see some pictures over the Thanksgiving weekend and some of the ball games, guys come home. They didn't choose to be there. They're in a wait. Their lives are at risk. And they're over there not of their own choosing. Or how about single moms this time of year? I was raised by one. And I know what they go through. And I know the load week after week of keeping food on the table and keeping family together and, and doing it by themselves. There is a weight they did not choose. And then how about just the challenges of that many of you have a work project right now. There's no, there's no let up at work. As soon as you finish, <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't talk about tomorrow morning. Some of you are having a good morning until I just mentioned this. You go back and there it's going to be waiting for you. And it just, there's no apparent let up. It's just, and, and the people you work with, some of them really just don't care. All they care about you know, is, is the check cut. And that can be a wait along the way. How do we handle those? Where do we go? And then the question is, who's better equipped to handle it? Us and our patterns and the way we've handled it before? Or the one who made us, the one who's holding our universe together? And you see, who is going to keep the universe running before and after we're gone? Before we got here, who kept it running? How did the world work without us? And after we're gone, who's going to keep it going? Who's going to keep? Well, somebody is in charge and we're not. And by the way, can you think of anyone in history who's lived a significant life who wasn't overwhelmed by life somewhere along the way? I don't think of any. Everybody faced beyond their limits somewhere along the way. Or maybe you're doing well right now, but you know how easy it is to get sick or there to be an injury. And what is God doing during all these things? He's teaching us to release life. That's what he's trying to say to Elijah. And finally, we will all go through that ultimate release, where we have to let go of life itself. We're not going to live forever on this planet. God intended it for it to be a short term. And you might get a few more years than others, but none of us are going to last forever here. We're all short term. We're all terminal. And God says, release it to me now, because wisdom begins to release before the end. Releasing our lives, our responsibilities, all that we try to control to him is wisdom from the very beginning. And somehow Elijah would discover that he wasn't the source and he was carrying a load that he was not designed to lift by himself. That's what this is about. Maybe you remember the story of the backpacker who was walking, observing the beauty. He was high up in the mountains and, and as he kind of walked along this narrow ridge, he was looking up and he took a step and he slipped and he started going down the side. It was about a 3,000 foot drop right down the side of the mountain. 
and he's, he yells up, help, and as he goes down, he grabs the branch of a, of a little bush sticking out. And, and he looks down, and he's going, oh, thank goodness. And then he begins to feel the little bush give way. And he looks up and he says, anybody up there can help me? And a voice says, let go. He looks up and he says, anybody else up there can help me? <laughs> and folks, that's the way it is. God is saying, whatever we're clutching to so tightly, can we trust him to release it to him? Now here's Elijah. He's had this great victory. And what we discover is that in the rest of this chapter, we're going to see God's initiation to restore him. And that should be a great encouragement to all of us to know that God gets involved when we have lost the resources to make it happen. That gives me great comfort. That's called his favor. That's called his grace. And God gets involved in our restoration. And does it surprise us that even the great people of faith at time experience great seasons of burnout and depletion and need the restoration of the hand of God? You know, it's actually a, a common occurrence. It's not as maybe, uh, you know, again, God might seem distant and uh, where, the, where the heavens seem locked. And throughout history, it's been noted as a common occurrence. In fact, in the 1500s, a Carmelite monk by the name of John of the Cross coined a phrase that's called the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. And by the way, this was not a Batman sequel that he was talking about. He talks about the condition of the human heart. And what, by the way, what a great name, John of the Cross. What if we name people like that today? You've heard me say this before, you know, like Patricia of the Pacific. Chad of the chamber, you know. Mine happens to be Orlando de la Playa, is what I call it. But anyhow, you know, I, I love the way they, they named him then. But you know, well-known believers over the centuries, in fact, even recently, a C.S. Lewis, many people don't know, he got married when he was 60 for the first time. And uh, the love of his life, and she died four years later of cancer, and he went through a very horrendous time questioning, doubting everything. Martin Luther, at the, at the Reformation, after it launched, went through another dark period of, of doubt and questioning in his own life. And some of you know Mother Teresa, after she made her, as a woman, had these marvelous experiences with God, but when she made her final commitment to, to start the Sisters of Charity, that it's like the heavens went silent on her. And some interesting reading in her life that the lights went out where they had once burned so brightly. You see, it's a time when good feelings dry up and God seems not to be at home. Where the excitement of our faith seems to be a distant memory. And it's actually become a common problem today among believers. Sociologist Christian Smith at Notre Dame University has noted that the fastest growing religion in America isn't Christianity, isn't Islam, isn't some Eastern religion. It's what he calls MTD. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Have you heard of it? Probably haven't. Because he coined the phrase. He says in MTD, there is a God who wants all of us to be nice, feel happy, and be delivered from pain. That's the therapeutic part. And he said, outside of being available when I need him, this God will not interfere with our life. <laughs> That's the deism part. And he says, we're drawn to MTD because we want our life to be nice, happy, and uninterrupted. Smith says, MTD is in our culture, it's in our churches, like fluoride is in our water. It's infectious, by the way. 
And John of the Cross spoke something about the same kind of condition over 500 years ago. You know what he called it? Spiritual gluttony. Spiritual gluttony. And he says, it's a condition where God is merely a means to fulfill my desire to experience warm feelings and spiritual energy. And John also taught this. It's a temptation for all Christians. He said this, God will actually withdraw good feelings from us to help us grow. Does that surprise you? Folks, I can verify that one. After a seven-year period of depression I told you about, I went through two and a half years of incredible euphoria, spiritual euphoria, just emotional highs that I could hardly wait to wake up in the morning and spend time praying with God. And it went on for two and a half years. And then like the, the brook uh, Kidron that dried up for Elijah when the ravens were feeding him, it began just to, to shut down. Now, fortunately, I had read things like John of the Cross to know that it was coming. And I was prepared for it. And it says a time where God is actually deepening our faith, not to trust our feelings, but to learn to trust in just who he is. The dark night of the soul has come to mean um, any experience of suffering or difficulty. Um, but for John, it had a special meaning. And he says this, it's a season in which God withdraws comfort and emotional ease for a purpose which is good, but which we may not understand. And you see, for Elijah, the fuzzies had been replaced by despair. And what about us? John Ortberg wrote an article in the same magazine. He says, the danger for most of us is that we desire feeling good more than we desire God. Has anybody ever desired feeling good more than God other than me? Yeah. yeah, it's easy to slip into that one. Easy to slip into that one. But God doesn't give up in Elijah's life. He takes the initiative and to expand his faith and to teach him dependency on his promises that life is not about our feelings. It's not about us feeling spiritual either. But it's learning to trust and depend on God when the lights go out. And for Elijah, all he could see in his future was lights out with no apparent hope with his condition. Even though it says here in this chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 19, that while he's running, and then look at verse 5, it says that he goes to sleep, and then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. As he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. And so he looked up, and there were some bagels, there were some lattes, and, and uh, that this angel had fixed. And I love this this whole um, uh, passage that, that he's there. Um, God begins to, to move in his life. But he sees no intervention of God in spite of this, uh, no hope of restoration in spite of this. Now here's another question I have. Elijah runs away. This is the same man who prayed, and for three years it didn't rain. He prayed and it rained again. But if you read this whole chapter, there's just no prayer. Elijah takes off and he runs and he keeps running. Wait a minute, this is a man of prayer. He doesn't pray. Have you ever asked yourself, why could that, how could that happen in someone who's walked with God this powerfully? Because sometimes, folks, we need help even to pray. And Elijah is in that condition. And so he would be helped to, number three, return to the source. And again, who is the source? God himself is the source. The angel of the Lord begins to, says, he shows up, he feeds him. And I love that because sometimes it says uh, Elijah's sleeping. God does his best work when we're asleep. 
You see, he can't run the universe when he's asleep, so God is at work. And when you're sleeping, who's running your universe? You're not. God is at work. This is another indication. God's at work when we can't. And so he lets him sleep and he feeds him because burnout drains not only the body, as we're going to see, but also the soul. And that's the greater challenge here. And sometimes restoration is an instant, but the key is being in God's presence. Here's a question. Where do you need to return to when you're depleted? Where do you need to return to today? Are you running on adrenaline or the routine? Where do we return? And folks, your place of rest isn't as we see Elijah ends up in a cave. It's not some island. The place of rest is a person. That's what God is all about. And he also then wants us to, uh, to not only to return to the source, but he wants us to rest in the source. Now, I asked you before, what is the source for? It's for everything that I'm going to need. Did you know that rest is the most unnatural response we have if we are responsible, driven people? It doesn't happen automatically. It's very hard for us to let go of things, is it not? Because physical rest is not the same as the rest of the soul. God had commanded his people in the Old Testament one day a week for rest, right? How often did Israel keep that command? Not very often. <laughs> he had to keep reminding them. They got in trouble because of that. They could not keep the command of God in this particular area. And the question is, do we? You know what we often do? I don't know about you, but today is not a day of rest for me. So mine has to be some other time during the week. And what we normally do, I, when I have time, I love to go out into the yard and just be in the yard. Do a little bit of work there. That rests me. And, you know, this time of year, there's a little bit of football game, you know, to watch. If your team wins, it's really fun. By the way, my team set a record last night. I just want to tell you this. They had more total yards of penalties than they did offense. And they won. They're not sure it's ever happened before. More penalties than they had actual offense, and they won the game. And I knew you were interested in that, so I told you. But, you know, what we simply do is we switch one activity for another. And if you've been in a place of responsibility, maybe you're the head of a department, maybe you own your own business, maybe you're a parent, rest is not automatic. And you see, God says we need help. That's why it says he makes me lie down. Because God knows sometimes we just won't. And it's hard for driven people. I've told you before in my own life when I realized life for me was like a bicycle and I had to pedal. And I was afraid to get off of it for very long. And all the responsibility, because if I got back off of it, I didn't know if I could get back on and get it going again. And I remember the day when someone says, I think you're a workaholic. And inside I went, yes, I've arrived. Because I had hardworking brother and, and brothers and, and mother. And realized that's not a compliment. And God's given me the ability to crank it a little bit. And I'm grateful for that. But you see, the workaholic's identity is in their achievement. The workaholic's identity is in what they can do, and others notice it, and they get accolades. By the way, it's not work that wears you out, folks. Did you know that? It's work with frustration. If you work, it produces adrenaline. You can work and keep going. There's nothing more wonderful than success after success. You can become an adrenaline junkie. It's frustration in the process of those things that wears us out. And what God is saying, he turns the spotlight on our soul during these times to reveal the source of our drivenness. That's what he's doing to Elijah. And that 
It reveals the source of our desires and our confidence and our fears. And isn't it true we get stay active because activity drowns out the fear and the pain of our souls so we don't have to look at it. We just keep going. And I don't have to deal with what's going on inside of me. But there's something else. It also drowns out the voice of God. So we can't hear him if we want. And I know all about that. When I realized as a younger pastor I stayed busy because I was afraid of hearing a voice of correction from my, I thought was my, my heavenly dad, but was not was the voice of my earthly dad. And if I slowed down, I was afraid of, of rejection or correction from God until I realized that's not how he spoke. And that's also evidence of heart drift. But also, rest assumes something else. Here's why it's so elusive. Rest assumes we are linked to the true source. And that true source seems, assumes that we live in his goodness and his grace. But that's not an automatic connection, you see. And he's the foundation and he's active to restore us. But he's on a different time schedule than our own. And he has a different voice. You know, uh, I'm reading recently about the younger generation, especially those under 21 who march to a different drumbeat. And those of you, I have a um, son-in-law here who's a youth pastor, and John and here, and, and we've talked about some of these things, but the younger generation is growing up differently than you think, folks. And we need to understand them. We need to help those who work with our youth because they have a significant challenge. This is also from Leadership Magazine. I want to read to you very briefly. It's called The Isolation Generation. Please, sir, may I have something different? It's not more the average young guy wants today. It's different. Psychologist Philip Zimbardo describes drug addiction as wanting more. But guys today have what he calls arousal addiction. Always wanting something different. This never-ending stream of stimulation is behind the growing failure of males to connect with women socially or to succeed academically. They're dropping out of life. Zimbardo cites excessive internet use, video gaming, and online porn as causes of this new addiction. By age 21, boys spend 10,000 hours gaming, two-thirds of that time in isolation. The average young man watches 50 porn clips a week. Boys' brains are being digitally rewired in a totally new way for change, novelty, excitement, and constant arousal, Zimbardo says. They're totally out of sync in traditional classes, which are analog, static, and interactively passive. They're totally out of sync in relationships, which build gradually and subtly. This is creating a generation of young men who do not connect well in traditional teaching situations, who lack social skills, especially with women. And I would tell you that all those video things and the, is not the problem. The problem is that their attempts to fill an empty, an empty void in the hearts of young men today that our society is not meeting and gives great opportunity for those of us who know and love Christ to step in and help. But folks, rest and quiet and solitude is hard for any generation, not just the younger ones. You know why? Because it leaves us naked and exposed in our soul to our own self-centeredness, our own sin, and our own evil. And who wants to look at that? And isn't it true that too often we can live as practical atheists, where we use God if he can help us, but the rest of the time we're on our own schedule, and we say, God, I can handle it. 
One of the greatest problems of today's society is we think we can handle it. And through our own activity and our own schedules, we lose objectivity and we think, well, I'm fine. One of the things that, that you'll ask people, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Here's what we're saying. My normal routine is working. There's no major crisis, so I must be okay. That's one of the fallacies of today's culture. So God will come along and he will test your routine as being insufficient to make life work apart from him. He's not on our schedule. He's not on our routine. And that's what he's trying to teach us. That's what he was trying to teach Elijah. Or if it's working out for you right now, it just means you haven't been sufficiently challenged. You haven't faced a big one, but it's coming. If life can work apart from his power and his significance. It means we haven't been pushed to our, illusion, our, our limits and we're under the illusion we can handle life ourselves. And that's why Elijah was so blindsided. He had two great victories. God had answered his prayer. He took out the prophets. He ran supernaturally and, and, and all of a sudden the bottom drops out. He's not prepared for that because life isn't supposed to work that way. It's not supposed to drop out at Thanksgiving or Christmas or any other time. But it does. So where does rest fit into all of this? I believe it's the ability to curl up with God when you're overwhelmed and sleep in his security. See, rest is faith in his care. And so when we can't sleep at night or we have high blood pressure, could it mean we haven't learned to handle our internal pressures? Now here's what our culture does. Our culture says, medicate first, and then ask questions later, if you ask them at all. Now, medication may be a supplement. I'm not denying that. But it's never a replacement for the internal work that God wants to do in us, to bring us to himself, to discover he's been waiting for us all along. And it's only in releasing and resting from the daily activity do we finally then receive from and listen to the source himself. Without that, we're never going to receive and, and be able to listen to the source. You know, when my wife goes to the grocery store, I always like it when she takes her phone. That way, if I can think of something, or if I'm there, I try to, you know, if I think something, I can call her and ask for it. She doesn't have the phone, it makes it real hard. I think God is saying to most of us, take your phone with you so I can connect. Wherever you're going today, take your spiritual phone, God is saying, so I can connect with you and you can hear me because I have much to share with you that's good. God is always speaking to us, whether we're aware of it or not. He speaks in good times. He speaks in trauma. However, he will not speak to us at the pace of busy. So we need to turn off all the bells and whistles. We need to unplug. I read this the other day and it just hits me. It says, the more we're convinced we're loved by him, the more motivated we are to listen. So if I'm willing to listen to God, it's a sign. I don't really believe he loves me. I don't really believe he has my best in mind because I'm going to stay busy because I got all these pressures and demands. No, 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 we miss it. We're not sure because we're looking to those things that we're doing to bring us love, and it can't. And so now God approaches Elijah. You know the famous story. He says, Elijah, come out and stand before me. <laughs> and uh, it says, first of all, he's standing there in, the, in, the, in this cave, and he's at the entrance of it. And God sends a wind and starts ripping the rocks off the side of the mountain. Can you imagine that one? I don't know how high, what level of hurricane that was, but it must have been a humdinger. And then he says, God sends an earthquake. And so everything's shaking now. 
And then third, he says he sends a fire. But in the wind, in the earthquake, and the fire, God isn't there. And finally, it says there's a gentle whisper, and God starts to speak. You know, Hollywood would make God speak in the big and the extravagant and the spectacular, but God slows down to the pace of his speed in a gentle whisper because he is only heard in quiet. And then when he does speak, what does he do? He asks a question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And you know, Elijah goes into his story. He says, I'm the only one, Lord. He says, they're out there trying to kill me. I'm the only one who's been faithful to you. And when God asks him the question, first of all, it's not a discovery. He knows where Elijah is. He's not saying, you know, where, where are you? This is a question for discovery. He's saying, Elijah, would you look inside, pal, and see what's going on inside of you? Why the panic? Why the escape? Why are you unwilling to face your fears? And the question is, does Elijah get it? And look at his response in verse 9. I just gave it to you. I'm the only one, Lord. I'm the only one of all your people. I'm the one prophet who's taken responsibility for what's going on around here. And you're letting me do all the work and doing it alone. No, he doesn't get it. <laughs> he doesn't get it. Because he's locked into himself, his own needs and his own perspective. So what does God do for his burned out, escaping prophet with a severe case of emotional myopia? He answers him. He says, lighten up, pal. He says in verse 18, I still have 700 faithful ones to me who haven't yet bowed the knee to the prophets or bowed the knee to Baal, the false god. And again, it's clear. In burnout, what happens? We lose objectivity. It weakens us and we tend to make ourselves the center of the universe. And then what do we do? We start blaming. Did you catch that? Who is Elijah blaming? He's blaming God. He said, God, you're the one who got me into this mess. You're the one who picked me as a prophet. Things were going swimmingly, and now look at the mess that we're in. Now, God's a big boy, and he can handle it. But he doesn't accept the blame. Why? You know what? God doesn't accept blame for any of our lives. You see, God knows that blamers see themselves as victims. The reason they have problems, it's other people. It's circumstances. You didn't meet my needs, and your life is all about you meeting my needs, blamers and shamers. And we all know some. It's kind of like the young, young husband, uh, father-to-be. He's in, he's in the delivery room with his wife, and he's there helping coach her, you know, the he who, and all those things, and she's having severe contractions, and all of a sudden he looks at her, and they lock eyes, and she's got fire in her eyes. Her eyes. She says, you're responsible for this. You know, right before she delivers. And that was a joke, folks. Sorry. <laughs> but you see, when blame is mixed with anger, it's a deadly combo. You know why we use anger? Because it takes the focus off of us. I don't have to deal with my issues, my attitude, or anything else. And I can put it on you. And so Elijah is throwing it on God. And the problem is nothing is solved that way. It's shifting focus. How do you think I learned that? As a young man in my early 20s, with deep emotional pain that I dealt with every day, you wouldn't have known it because I like to have fun. But I remember reading a book on adult children of alcoholics because there wasn't anything else written in those days by Christians especially. And they started describing the conditions of an adult child of an alcoholic. It says, first of all, they have black or white or stinking thinking. Everything's great or everything's awful. There's nothing in between. Disaster or wonderful. No wonder they can't live. I'm thinking, that's me. 
Secondly, they see themselves as victims. If life was only better, if I'd had a better this, or you treated me better, or the circumstances were that way, I could do all these things, and victim mentality. I said, oh, God. I started getting scared. And it says, then they have the same characteristics as drinkers, even if they don't drink. I said, God, I'm all three of those. I said, you've got to do something in me. Get rid of this victim mentality. And it became a crusade in my life. It scared me. And so how does God answer that prayer? Do you notice what he does for Elijah, who he doesn't pray it? First, he allows Elijah to be overwhelmed. And if you're a blamer or a victim, he's going to let you be overwhelmed. Okay? And under-supported by people for a very specific reason. He'll let that happen. You know why? So that we'll begin to question our assumptions, our lifestyle, and our conclusions. That it's not about somebody else. It's all about me and what's going on in me. And he wants to reveal our blind spots. And also, it's to speed up healing, believe it or not, by helping us then return finally to responsibility. And we're going to see he does that in just a moment. So question this morning. Where are you tempted to be a victim? In your home, in your work, in your personal life. Where are you tempted to blame others for your pain? God is saying, Turn it over to me, don't you see? That's a major blind spot. God is saying, hey, bring that load to me. I care about you. That's what he's doing for Elijah. And if you're in a home of blamers or victims, somebody needs to have the courage to step up and say, you know what? This, there's a better way than this. This isn't God's way. We don't have to blame each other. We don't have to play the victim role. God's got a better way. And let's do it his way. And then healing increases when we accept the fact God's going to give an assignment. So what does he do to Elijah? He says, Elijah, I want you to get up now. You know, he's, and he didn't even talk. He says, it's not quit blaming. He says, I want you to go anoint two kings and your future successor. And so he sends him back with responsibility. Do you know what responsibility is healing if you do it? And during a time of great loss in my life, God got me up again to take responsibility. And I didn't realize how powerful a healing an agent it was along the way to get us on our feet to go. And on top of that, he anoints his successor, and now for a while he's got a buddy that he can share this load with because God knows what he's doing. The good news is Elijah gets it finally. He hears God, he acts on it, and he moves forward. But more than that, he's starting to hear God because he is assured finally of God's care in his life. He comes to see it. And that leads to the very final thing, and that is simply to refocus on the source. That's what this whole thing's been about. I know I need rest. I know I need to get away. But rest is not about a place. It's about a person. Refocus on the source. Again, the source of what? Of everything we need, of life and grace. Now, as, as a grandparent, um, my daughter who's here called me before, I think it was before we went to, or whenever it was, a couple weeks ago, and said, Dad, Connor, Connor's my man, he's two years old, grandson, says, Connor was talking this morning about this present he wants for Christmas. And Mommy was talking about waiting for all that. And she says, he looks at her and he says, Grandpa's going to buy it for me. And you know what? Grandpa is. <laughs> and if he asks for it five times, he's going to get five of them. And you know what? I think God's that way. When we refocus on him and we're at the end of our rope, whatever it might be, God isn't going to say, oh, no, go away. 
He's saying, please come to me. Please plug into me. I want to give you so much more than you can imagine. But what he's waiting is, will we return to the source, receive his directions, and make time for him when all the demands leave our head scratching? There is no time for God. He says, yeah, there is. You see, left to himself, this great man of faith, Elijah, wouldn't have made it. But God met him. He nursed him back to renewal. He gave him responsibility. He taught him how to work through the blame, give it up so he could be free again. And now he's moving forward. He's been restored to the rhythms of rest. Question, does it always take some crisis to create conditions where we will finally cry out for rest, renewal, and recreation? Recreation? Actually, no. However, most of the time it does. <laughs> God has to take us to the end to get us to cry out to him the way that we really should. He would prefer not to do it that way, he would prefer us just to go to him on a regular basis. But he knows he's going to have to do that in our lives sometimes. On the back of your outline is something for your quiet time. It's the life of Jesus in the first uh, Luke 3 through 11. Of all the times Jesus got alone with his father or prayed, take a look at it. Not only what was it that led Jesus to do that, and then what are the results? You're going to see some miracles that come out of this power, direction, all kinds of things. Because he made time in the busiest schedule that's ever been lived. He made time to be alone with his father. Here's the final question. Ask yourself this. What is your source of rest, of renewal, of refocus? Are you waiting for some other person to do it for you? Well, if I could only meet the right one. Is it some kind of recreation that you have that you hope will do? If it was, you wouldn't have to keep doing that recreation. <laughs> Is it TV? Is it the internet? What is it? There is an answer. Rest comes from return to the source. The one who made you, the one who loves you, the one who has your best in mind because he's a God full of grace and truth. Let's bow together. <clears throat> Father, thank you for pursuing us like you pursued Elijah. And I'm amazed, Father, that you don't get short with us like I did with the Cambodians and my translator. You don't give up on us, but you keep gently pulling us back to your side. Help us to release to you the life that we carry, the load that we carry. In the midst of busy, busy schedules, Ask the Spirit of God what He's saying to your heart this morning. First of all, you can't rest if He doesn't live in you. And do you know that He resides inside? Are you sure of that? He would love to give you that assurance. Jesus Christ came to this earth. The scripture says, to as many as received Him, He gave the ability to become the children of God. Have you ever received him and all he's done for you? If you're not sure you have, then do it right where you sit this morning. You can say, God, I don't understand it all, but I do know I want you. I want your son. I want your mercy, your forgiveness, the promise of your power and help. 
and eternal life. But for others, I know this morning the Spirit of God has been asking some of us to release some things to Him. Maybe it's your future. Maybe you've got a schedule that's so busy this week you can't even think about it. He's saying, will you give me some time before it comes to having to sit down because we're burned out? Have you found yourself where you're now short with people, blaming? God's saying that's a signal there's something deeper going on inside. Don't waste your energy blaming others. Take your pain to Him. Say, God, help me see what's going on inside of me. And I want to come to you and receive your mercy and your grace to replace the pain in my own heart that I'm taking out in others. And finally, are you so busy you can't hear from God? He wants to speak. Will you slow down to the rhythms of rest? Take some time to be quiet. Just be alone. If you're afraid of hearing him, just say, God, I just want to hear your, your love for me. I want to know your favor and grace. And then also, remember, he sends you back on a mission to bless other people, just as he sent Elisha to bless and anoint. Say, God, would you use me this Christmas season to bless others? Those in my family, those who need you. Father, thanks for hearing us. Thank you this morning for the realities that you're the one who chases after us in love and in grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, for giving us the strength that it takes to walk with you. I pray you'll provide for us this season. Rest in yourself and a heart and passion to pass it on to others. Bless us as we go now, we ask in Christ's name and all God's people said. Turn and greet two or three on the way out. And have a wonderful morning. God bless you.